From WNYC in New York, it's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. It's day 72. Tonight, America, are we ready to close the urban-rural divide? Short answer, probably not, at least not right away. But with his COVID relief bill and his new infrastructure plan, Biden is giving it a try. Our guest after the news will be former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, who's now on a mission to reconnect Democrats with rural America and reconnect rural America with her party after rural voters went so heavily twice for Donald Trump. Heidi Heitkamp and your calls if you live in the country or know someone who does. America, are we ready to close the urban-rural divide? After the latest news. From WNYC in New York, it's America. Are we ready? Our Thursday night national call in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. Today is day 72. And good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. Nice to be back with you again. Happy April 1st. Happy opening day of the baseball season. Happy Easter week to those who celebrate it. Happy Passover week to those who celebrate it. And the earlier spring holidays, too. Holy in the Hindu tradition, Nowruz in the Persian tradition. Ramadan starts in April this year. And on the lighter side, of course, it's April Fool's Day. And if I were to say to you that the Democratic Party is hoping to win back rural voters in the next election cycle... You might think I was April fooling you, right? Maybe even a Borat-level April Fool's prank. After all, in the presidential election, according to the New York Times' breakdown of the Edison Research exit polls, Biden won in cities of more than 50,000 people by 22 percentage points over Trump, won big in populated areas. But Trump won by 15 points in rural areas and smaller cities. Biden won the suburbs by a hair. So the trend is clear. The further away you live from the nearest downtown, the more likely you are to be a Republican and vice versa. But wait, that same exit poll in 2016 found that Trump won the small city and rural vote by 28 points against Hillary Clinton. So the 15 or 17 point win this time was actually a sign of life for country Democrats And that's no joke. But big divides remain in the way rural and small-town Americans see their values, their economic interests, and their cultures. And that matters a lot to the future of both parties and American unity and progress. Here is the president speaking yesterday, explicitly trying to make urban and rural Americans see their interests as the same as he introduced his $2 trillion infrastructure plan. This plan is important, not only for what and how it builds, but it's also important to where we build. It includes everyone, regardless of your race or your zip code. Too often, economic growth and recovery is concentrated on the coast. Too often, investments have failed to meet the needs of marginalized communities left behind. There is talent innovation everywhere. And this plan connects that talent through cities, small towns, rural communities, through our businesses and our universities, through our entrepreneurs, union workers, all across America. We have to move now. Because I'm convinced that if we act now, in 50 years, people are going to look back and say, this was the moment that America won 
the future. So, folks, that is pretty explicit. And it's part of Biden's 100-day agenda to go big with plans like on infrastructure and COVID relief over the heads, in a way, of Republicans in Congress to see what kind of new coalitions he can build among the people. Time will tell if it works. America, are we ready to close the rural-urban divide? We'll talk to former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota in a minute. She grew up in a town of 64 people, according to what I read, and she's on a mission to reconnect her party to rural voters and rural voters to her party. But let me give out the phone number first and invite certain ones of you to call in. Our call-ins on this show tend to be for different groups of voters each week. And tonight, call in if you live in a rural area. If you're a Republican, tell us why the GOP tends to represent you better. Tell us why the Democrats have not inspired your trust. And tell us how Biden is doing, in your opinion, after 72 days. Our phone number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Is your party affiliation as a Republican about culture war issues, guns and religion and things like that? Is it about where the money goes or maybe something else? And if you voted for Trump, how's Biden doing for you so far? The polls indicate he's at least winning some of you over. And as that clip we played indicates, as well as some others we'll play later in the hour, he's trying explicitly to win you over. 844-745-TALK, rural Republicans, 844-745-8255. And if you're a rural Democrat, tell us why you think a lot of your neighbors in your rural area vote Republican. And for callers from both parties, tell us if you think there's anything Democrats can do to close the urban-rural divide. How could Biden succeed, in your opinion? How could Heidi Heitkamp succeed in either serving you better or just convincing you that they have the better ideas? Or ask Heidi Heitkamp a question. Our number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. And as your calls are coming in, Let's bring on former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp. She was elected in 2012 and served one six-year term before being defeated by Republican Kevin Kramer in 2018. She had previously been the North Dakota State Attorney General for eight years, among other things. These days, she's a CNBC contributor, senior fellow at the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs at Brown University, and founder of a group called the One Country Project, trying to make more Americans feel like they live in one country with an emphasis on reconnecting rural voters and the Democratic Party. Senator Heitkamp, thanks so much for joining us for this dialogue tonight. Welcome to America. Are we ready? Well, thanks so much for having me. And just one correction. When I lived in Manador, in my small town, we had 90 people, and my family was <laughs> one-tenth the population. So that's why the population's gone down. <laughs> yeah, you had a few siblings. Um, well, when you lived in Manador, North Dakota, um, can you describe what it was like there when you were a kid? And pertinent to this conversation, has has your hometown or the towns around it drifted more Republican since you were a kid? And if so, why? You know, it's interesting because when I was a kid, you didn't really know who were Democrats and Republicans unless your parents told you. I mean, it wasn't the center of the universe the way it seems to uh, be 
um, in many places right now where it's part of the identity. It was, you know, we always laughed, you know, it was whether you were a Lutheran or a Catholic or, you know, you knew what the divisions were and it was never Democrat and Republican. And I always tell people, my, I mean, my folks knew because I think my mom and dad always leaned towards the Democratic Party. We're not particularly active. But, you know, I always said, look, these are these are small towns where you get in a in a table and there might be Democrats and Republicans and there might be Yankees fans and Twins fans and Catholics and Lutherans. But somehow they figure out how to fix the roof on the church. They figure out how to fund the fire department. And some of that, because politics has gotten so hyper and so center focused, so nationally focused, some of that has that community spirit has really been injured by, I think, hyper-partisanship. And and one of the things that we want to do at One Country is say, look, there are alternatives. You don't have to demonize one side or the other. Yeah, everybody's got different ideas. We think the Democratic Party has good ideas. And, you know, one of the reasons why people, when I was growing up, were were Democrats is because they had an affection for FDR. They remember that he put food on their table. My grandmother used to say that. I'm a Democrat because FDR made sure my family didn't starve during the Depression. And so I think that we need to get back to talking about the economic policies and so much of what's been dividing people right now in rural America has been more cultural. Whether I mean, you see now all of these bills in, in legislators legislatures that that deal with trans athletes you know whether you're gonna you know who can play on what sports team you know Mm -hmm. this is not a problem in america but yet it's a divisive cultural issue that's being you know advanced to kind of divide people and we're hoping that we can once again refocus on what everybody wants america to be and how we can uh, deliver a better product um uh, to the to the american people in rural america by the way i don't buy this there were Twins fans and Yankees fans in North Dakota. <laughs> in North Dakota, there were no Yankees. Maybe Cardinals, if you want oh, to Oh, are you kidding? No, no, no. No, no, no. Um, let me tell you. Do you know a guy named Roger Maris? Heard of him. Uh-huh. Yep. Sure you know Roger oh, Maris. Oh, is he from He's there? He's from Fargo, North Dakota. There you go. Yeah. Which is, yeah, there you go. <laughs> like As about, we say in North Dakota and Minnesota, there you go. There you, you know, go. That, that, Yep, but Roger Maris, of a lot of Yankees fans in North Dakota. Fargo, the big city, 60 miles north of where you grew up. <laughs> so yep. this is a series for Biden's first 100 days. This is day 72. And I see on your One Country Project website that you have a poll of rural Americans from seven states taken after the first 33 days with mixed results. You found he's doing fairly well in rural America on some important things like the COVID relief bill, vaccines, and the minimum wage. He even gets pretty good numbers on climate change, which surprised me a little. But he's in negative territory on education, on immigration, and on jobs. So how would you put those things together to start to describe how he's connecting in rural America so far? The first thing I think mistake that people make is they see rural America and they think it's all about farms and agriculture. A lot of rural America, when you look, especially in a state like Wisconsin, lots of small town manufacturing. In fact, Trex Bikes, who a lot of your listeners probably 
you know, grew up on a track that's in rural Wisconsin. And so, you know, we can't just paint economically rural America just as agricultural America. It also is a big place for extraction of minerals. And so where Biden's numbers fall off is when you talk about things like the Keystone XL pipeline, because a lot of people see that as jobs. You talk about what's going to happen with fossil fuels and coal-generated electricity and what's going to happen to those plant workers, you know, that, that the the statements that he makes, uh, and I think some early misses on saying, look, you know, the workers can make solar panels. That's like fingernails on a chalkboard to people who work at a refinery or people who work in a plant who many of them uh, get union wages and they make, you know, six figures. And if you look at other industrial opportunities, other blue collar opportunities, you know, that, that their wage may, in fact, in North Dakota be cut in half. And so people have some level of economic insecurity. The so border, we, we, we I, have a minute. We have a minute before our first break, and then we'll start bringing on okay. some callers with you. But briefly, um, the things you just laid out, are those unbridgeable divides if the Democrats no. are going to be serious about climate change, for example? No, because I think many, many fossil fuel workers see the handwriting on the wall. I don't think that they're living in la-la land and think this is going to continue to go on. They just want to know what the opportunities are, and they don't want to be told what they're going to do. They want to be part of that conversation. And so we're working um, with a number of groups right now, including union groups, to try and have that conversation more broadly with with, uh, extraction fossil fuel workers. Do you think, in 10 seconds, that Biden landed with them at all with this infrastructure rollout? Yep, yep, because those are the kinds of construction jobs they want. And when it's Davis-Bacon wages, which we can talk about, they know that they're going to get a good salary. We'll continue in a minute with Heidi Heitkamp and your calls. America, are we ready to bridge the rural-urban divide? Stay with us. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days here on Day 72. I'm Brian Lehrer. Tonight, it's America, Are We Ready to Bridge the Rural versus Urban Divide? With former North Dakota Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who has founded a group attempting to connect her Democratic Party better to rural voters and vice versa. And our phones are open if you're a rural Republican, especially if you were a Trump voter in 2020. Tell us why the GOP tends to represent you better and tell us how Biden is doing, in your opinion, after 72 days. He's doing fairly well, crossing party lines in the polls in the early going. How true is that for you? And if you're a rural Democrat, tell us why you think a lot of your neighbors vote Republican and what your party should do to woo them back. Our phone number, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And let's take a call from Taylor, not too far from your hometown and home state, Senator Heitkamp Taylor in Rushford, Minnesota. Taylor, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi, guys. Hope you guys are having a good evening. Um, As I told your screener, we, we live in a town of about 2,000 people. Uh, it's a rural uh, farm town. Um, I, I identify myself as Republican. I'm 31 years old, and I, I have not voted for a Democrat or a Republican in either um, state, local, or uh, federal elections. Um, and the reason is I feel that um, neither one really represents represents us. Um, 
both both of them give us higher taxes. Um, in fact, down here, uh, we have a thousand acre farm, most of it pasture and woodland. Um, the property taxes on it each year are more than our uh, actual income. Um, it, it just makes it hard to be a, a rural uh, person farmer when your taxes are continually on the rise, pushing you just kind of right out of the area. It, uh, I guess that's all I got to say. Have a good night, guys. Thank you very much. All right, Thank Senator you. Heitkamp, he's not going to hang around to try to be convinced, but how would you try to convince Taylor <laughs> to cast a vote for a Democrat at some point? I, well, first off, you know, I, one thing you didn't mention in my bio, I am the former tax commissioner from North Dakota, so I know exactly what he's talking about. When people talk about um, property taxes and wealth, and you hear the Democrats talk about wealth taxes, they think that that's a progressive tax. It can be very regressive for people like your caller um, because he's, he, use, he, he has a lot of real estate on which he makes his income. And if you base your tax on the value of real estate and that tax goes up, it is very damaging. And so, you know, it, it, this is a state and local issue. It's got to be about prioritization. It's got to be about making sure that his family farm doesn't shoulder the burden of taxes for everyone, um, whether it's uh, township roads or whether it is county roads, whether it's taking a look at county law enforcement. You know, I think he's got a very legitimate complaint. And, you know, in North Dakota, we've tried to find ways to provide property tax relief, but we keep coming back to people don't like income tax. And so, um, you know, first off, you got to make sure that you are telling people what you're spending money on and making sure that they agree with it. But you also have to understand that, you know, what may be, you know, taxing a high rise in New York City on property tax, they may, that may in fact, be a representative of your ability to pay, but it's not if you're a small farmer. And you might say, well, he's got a thousand acres. That's not a big farm, especially if it's mostly pasture land in our part of the country. And so what I would, I would love to have a conversation with him about what he would like to see changed in the budget and what he would like to see changed in terms of the mix of taxes in his state in Minnesota. Josh so, in mechanics. Good start. I mean, in theory. Josh in Mechanicsburg, yeah. Pennsylvania. You're on America. Are we ready with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp? Hi, Josh. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my concern is really with, you know, they speak a good game and they talk uh, about all the things they want to do, but when it comes to actually following through or doing things that they promise, you know, example would be guns. You know, they want to tax guns. They want to take away ammo uh, purchasing ability. With 375 million firearms in our country, you're not going to put that back in the bag. And I think the uh, way that we could move forward was actually to teach and show more firearm safety. As a young kid, was taught firearms, firearm safety, how to hold and operate a weapon. Uh, I think it's really important that we don't hide these and make these uh, firearms, um, you know, poison fruit that we expose people to them so they understand them and use them for hunting and shooting and recreation, and there's not such a fear about guns. Um, my second thing, I think, would be, you know, the immigration. Um, they keep saying that we're going to change the way immigrants are brought into the country, and we're not just going to catch and release them in and then have a three-year trial uh, down the road. I think it's important to open up immigration. That's fine. No problem with immigrants, but they need to be you know, people that want to come here and will contribute to our society. Josh, I see you told our screener that 
you voted for Trump. I'm curious how you think, now that you've laid out those those couple of issues, and thank you for those, um, how you think Biden is doing, let's say, compared to Obama, in your own view, or just how he's doing at all? Uh, I think Biden is really taking up the same uh, you know, plans and issues that Obama did in terms of it's pretty much Obama 2.0 in that, in, in that sense. I mean, he inherited pretty much the whole cabinet and everyone that was in the administration for Obama. Josh, thank you for your call. We really appreciate it. So Senator Heitkamp, he, he talked about guns at the beginning of the call. You're a Democrat, but my understanding is that as a rural state senator, you bucked your party on some key divisive issues, and gun control was one of them. Does your position on that issue indicate what you think some bottom a bottom line is for Democrats to win rural voters and listening to Josh's call, they have to give up on things like universal background checks or banning what Democrats call assault weapons and be, you know, less aggressive about that? Well, I, you know, guns is, are, are always a tough issue because most of the people who are talking about legislating on guns uh, have no familiarity with them. They don't know how, you know, if you listen to the way they talk, you're kind of like, well, that's not what happens. Um, and so if you, I mean, one of the things that I always wanted to do was to do a demonstration on what is an assault weapon. People say, well, look, that's an assault weapon. It's a military style weapon. And I'd say, you know, if you had, if you adjusted a 22, you could do almost as much damage with it. And that's what frustrates rural gun owners because they understand these weapons, and he's absolutely right about safety. And I tell you a story. After Sandy Hook in North Dakota, the single biggest sale that people had was gun safes, you know, putting guns in safes, locking up, taking them away from children, making sure that children get the kind of education that they need. And so when you own a gun and you're a responsible gun owner, and as I believe my husband and I are, and, and when we, every gun owner is demonized, then then you feel like you're part of people who would do heinous things like what happened in Atlanta, heinous things like what, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the latest shooting. And, and so, so this is about dialogue. Going out there, when he said, you're going to take away ammo, that's not true. That's been a longstanding rumor that, that okay, we're not going to take guns. We're going to take, uh, you know, ammunition away. Well, wait, isn't one of the proposals that a lot of Democrats talk about, I don't know if it's in the most recent legislation, but limiting uh, the size of the magazines, in, in other yeah, words, not, how many, how many bullets you can fire before you have to reload? Yeah. Right, and that's not limiting the sale of ammunition, which is what he was talking about. Um, that is, that, I mean, that's been a long rumor that, that it, you know, the First Amendment basically provides protection for, for guns, so then people are going to, you know, and, and extreme people have talked about basically limiting ammunition um, sales. And so these are the things, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. It's about Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin did Manchin to me, which was background checks. Okay, so West Virginia is probably even more pro-gun than North Dakota, if that's possible, right? But he got reelected. How did he get reelected? Because he went out and explained his vote in rural, rural West Virginia. And that's what I'm talking about, one country. Getting out there, actually talking about what this looks like. I could sit down with a group of the North, not, not the hardcore militia 
folks, but really gun owners, you know, mm-hmm. in North Dakota, feel strongly about the Second Amendment and start talking about sensible gun legislation. And they would nod their heads. I mean, I, I have a whole family of hunters. And, and, you know, we've had long conversations about this. But what frustrates them so often is that is these broad statements about weapons without an understanding about weapons. And so, you know, I don't know that we're going to win this guy back. Um, probably not likely. But I would tell you that there's a number of people in rural America, just as if we talked about climate, if you actually ask their opinion, you would find out what their what their concerns are. And you might not be able to alleviate all of them, but you certainly could have a, a, a good conversation and maybe come to agreement on 80 percent of what you wanted to do. But we don't have those conversations because they're too hard. And also because our polarized environment if you do have those conversations, if you're someone like me who says, look, I'm going to I'm going to have these conversations, I'm going to take a position that I think is is, uh, you know, fits with my constituency, but also that will advance, you know, protection of people or protection of the environment. Then if it's not exactly the way, you know, somebody who is, uh, you know, in the more progressive side of the the Democratic ledger, if they don't agree with that, then you're persona non grata. And so, you know, th- this is this is a problem on both sides. And so we just need to have these conversations. I'd love to sit down and visit with them. I know Joe Manchin would love to sit down and visit hmm. with people like him and talk about what is sensible for gun legislation. It's America. To are protect we... people, but also to respect the Second Amendment. It's America. Are we ready tonight? Are we ready to bridge the urban-rural divide with former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, who's on a mission to try to reconnect her party and rural voters. And Alex in St. Augustine, Florida, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Alex. Hi. Thanks. Um, As I told your screener, um, I was a lifelong Democrat, and I started to become disenchanted with the Democratic Party because of their refusal to acknowledge the catastrophic effects that illegal immigration has on the working class. I come from a small town in North Florida where the primary source of income for working class people is construction, hospitality, that would be in restaurants, and and cooking in the restaurants. And the influx of illegal workers are focused on the same sector of labor. So obviously, this does affect the working poor and the working class. And the Democratic Party historically has stood elbow to elbow, hand in hand with the working class. And then somewhere along the line, they stopped that. And not only did they stop that, but they completely avoided the effects that this has on the working class. And I don't know what happened, why, but we really need to to address that if you're going to bring the rural and and working class back to the Democratic Party. So, uh, Alex, thank you, Senator Heitkamp. I know there are many economists who would who would disagree with the analysis, but there are also some without an axe to grind who say that there have been some negative effects on working class. African Americans as well as white people uh, from the amount of immigration that we have with relatively unskilled labor. Well, he's he's talking supply demand economics, right? One oh one. 
you increase the supply of low-wage workers, you lo- you depress the wage. I mean, he's right about this. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to take a harsh position on, on uh, immigration. The irony is the Republican Party has always been the party of immigration because they want that influx of workers and they want to make sure that they can keep wages low. I mean, that's been historically the position. And, and he's absolutely right. I think immigration has been one of those things, along with the trade agreements, that the Democratic Party has not had a conversation or a discussion about why, you know, why these policies are going to work for working class people. When I started out in politics, there were two groups that I could count on. Working class white, working class men and women, you know, family farmers, small family farmers, the people that we, we think the Democratic Party represents the most and elderly those are the two groups the democratic party has lost elderly probably more on more cultural issues but he's he's not wrong and that needs to be a discussion that the democratic party needs to have of you know why why the democratic party doesn't believe it depressed wages obviously i what i would say back to him is you know a, a wage of 15 dollars an hour and and i i am so frustrated by this 15 dollar an hour minimum wage because it is less than $33,000 a year, and that's how we should talk about it. Not as $15, but as less than $33,000 a year for a working person. So the minimum wage isn't going to affect, isn't going to uh, stop uh, working class poverty. And, and so I'm, I'm sympathetic. I would love to have, again, another conversation about this, and I do not disagree with them. I think it's supply-demand economics. I was just um, having a conversation with somebody who wanted to open the borders to anyone who wanted to come, I said, you know, tell, tell that to a guy who's running a small construction firm who's going to be undercut um, by somebody who is going to be able to, you know, when he's just trying to make a living and somebody comes in and undercuts him and bids the project less than uh, half because he's, they're, they're bringing in very low-cost uh, labor. So and, he- and that... On Go the ahead. reverse side, the the NAFTA is is exactly you know those jobs being transported. It's it's a wage, it's a wage competition that I don't think has been adequately addressed by the Democratic Party. So here's another clip from Biden's infrastructure speech yesterday that starts to get to an intersection between economics and racial identity, and then I want to get your impression of how effective, excuse me, this might look to be here 24 hours later. Um, This is trying to connect rural and urban voters' interests within the $2 trillion that he wants to spend. We make all of these investments. We're going to make sure, as the executive order I signed early on, that we buy American. That means investing in American-based companies and American workers. Not a contract will go out that I control that will not go to a company that is an American company with American products all the way down the line and American workers. And we'll buy the goods we need from all of America, communities that have historically been left out of these investments, Black, Latino, Asian American, Native Americans, rural, small businesses, entrepreneurs across the country. Biden yesterday. And Senator, we have a minute before our next break. So we're going to start a conversation that will continue on the other side. But 
The end of that clip, he's listing marginalized Americans, and right in there with black, Latino, Asian Americans, and Native Americans, who he names all of them, he listed rural, which generally translates mm -hmm. as white and Republican. And historically, this doesn't work, partly because race and culture so often trump economics. Can he change that with things like this? Well, I'll tell you what's really popular is Buy America. And uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin has been trying to put this in almost every bill along the way and been resisted by Republicans. And if the Republicans are going to resist Buy America because it's incredibly popular all ac across the board, no matter if you're urban, rural, they do so at their peril. This is a smart move on his part that the, re the economists would say you're going to drive up costs as a result of that. Because, right. We're you going know, to pick up right there when we come back. This is America. Are we ready? It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days here on Day 72. I'm Brian Lehrer. Tonight, it's America, Are We Ready? to bridge the rural versus urban divide with former North Dakota Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who has also founded a group attempting to connect her Democratic Party Betty better to rural voters. And we're taking your phone calls, Democrats, Republicans, anyone in rural America, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. To follow up on what we started before the break, Senator, how explicitly do you address race in your One Country Project? Because for decades, Republicans, I don't have to tell you, have won presidential elections among white voters, and Democrats have won among Black and Latino and increasingly Asian American voters, and when I watch Fox, for example, one of the most common themes I see is the belief that systemic racism is a hoax and the Democrats want to take your money and your political power and your public safety away on the back of that hoax. And, Senator, I think there we have a pretty fundamental racial divide that makes any talk of unity on the best tax rates or the best energy sources or any individual policy item much more charged and much more difficult. So do you address this reality explicitly in the One Country Project and offer any solutions to it? Well, I mean, we talk about how the perception of rural America is white America, which we try and dispel that myth. It's Native American. It's Hispanic American. It is it is very diverse. We've been working with uh, uh, traditional uh, black belt uh, uh, rural uh, African-American voters are thrilled by what happened in the COVID bill, trying to equalize things for black farmers um, and disadvantaged farmers. And so, you know, let's let's first off say rural America isn't just white America. It's, it's a cross-section of America. But I think that we have to begin to address common interests. You know, I, I was with a young person uh, recently, and he was a canvasser in Iowa. And regardless of what door he went to. He started out, they was taught to start out with this question, you know, are you going to support so-and-so? That's not what he said. He said, what kind of America do you want to live in? And regardless of race and regardless of, of kind of where people, where, where people were politically, guess what? They all had the same answer. They want to live in a secure America that offers opportunity where their kids can live a better life. When we focus on those things 
And I'm not saying that we should not be focused on curing systemic racism, but to suggest that all of rural America doesn't see what what happened in Minneapolis as a huge problem, where they don't see the historic uh, challenges that we have, I think is is um, is not fair to rural America. Now there are going to be people who will say you know, who will buy into the grievance that I'm not getting what I need because you're getting something more than me. That's always going to be with us. We just need to make sure that we're speaking to the people who um, uh, want to hear a unifying American message. And and so I, I'm not kidding myself. I don't think I'm going to be able to convince everybody, but I think there's a vast majority of people, as you saw. And, and I would tell you, after the George Floyd death in Minneapolis, we had in places like rugby north dakota we had uh, young people coming out standing at street corners with black lives matter and this has to stop messages and so you saw that all across rural america you saw once people saw what was happening and what happened the kind of outpouring that was an american message not a rural message not an urban message and so but i'm not pollyanna about this but i but i want you to understand that it is more nuanced in rural America than than what we've been led to believe. You know, I was going to go to Leah in Cannon Falls, Minnesota next, but Leah, hang on. I want to go first to Ben in Cincinnati because I think Ben wants to follow up on what you were just saying. Ben, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi. Uh, so I'm from Hillsboro, uh, one of the four uh, newspapers in 2016 that endorsed Trump was the uh, Times Gazette in Hillsborough. It's very, very white, very rural area. And being in Ohio, there's always been a very quiet racism about certain policies and how they are accepted. And the Democratic Party could do a better job of making it explicit uh, when it comes to things like welfare spending. Uh, there's a quiet racism that has gone along since Reagan with the, the, the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. And in the past four years, we've seen white supremacy come out into the open, uh, be very much more uh, vocal, not just the David Dukes, but we see what happened on January 6th as, as, a, as an expression of this. We have a chance now to frame democratic policy as explicitly dismantling white supremacist policies. And that makes people in discussions with their neighbors have to come out and say, I am against white supremacy or not. Senator. Yeah, I I, I think, um, and, and this is where I will get maybe more partisan than what I always like to get, but... Ronald or uh, Donald Trump invited white supremacists into his coalition. He gave them a seat at the table that they've never had before, and they came out in droves to support him. They were a critical part of his, and 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 all of us watched, and I watched as seventy-four million people voted for him, thinking, "What am I missing? How could this have? How could he have seventy-five million votes?" And I'm usually pretty pretty open to uh, why people might vote for Trump, but. I am very concerned exactly about this problem and how do we now marginalize? We aren't going to put the genie back in the bottle. How do we marginalize these voices, these white supremacist voices? We have to go at the heart of it. And the heart of it is this idea of grievance, this idea that 
man, they're taking something from me. I'm working uh, 40 hours a week and, and I'm barely making it. And yet I'm paying for this person to just sit on their butt. And they always have the one example, right? Whether it's the guy who's eating uh, lobster on food stamps or whatever it is. We've got to start educating people on the fact that most people, I mean, almost all these folks are working and a lot of them are working two, three jobs and that this is about the dignity of work and, and the, the pressure on, on this is to keep those wages down. And when you raise wages, that's going to equalize things for everyone. But I think we've got to really be very aware of what's happening and we have to address it and we have to understand it because a lot of it's being driven by crazy conspiracy theories it's being driven by you know kind of this this uh falsehoods and and he's absolutely right i mean everybody's like oh you know if you say that you're you're racist as opposed to why do you believe that and how can we how can we show you that those those things aren't true that the 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 problem that we have is that we no longer can agree on a set of facts. So if I said, look, I'm going to show you that African-Americans are working in this economy, that they are, in fact, contributing to this economy, that many of them are working two, three jobs. You know, grandmas are taking care of kids while single moms work, you know, and just all the economic struggles that people have. And people will say, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe that number. I don't think that's what's happening. And and that's a, almost as great a danger as people making assumptions without any facts is that when you do show them facts, they don't get it and and don't believe it. And so I think I think we need to redefine um, kind of what our what our hopes and aspirations are and then try and figure out how we can bring everyone along. And one of the things that's happening is this kind of self-selective, you know, I'm going to only listen to this news or only going to live in this community. And one of the things I used to tell my kids, if somebody's mad at you, go stand next to them. They can't be mad at you that long. And that's that, you know, I, I, I hear this so often. You say, well, I, I think all these immigrants are this. And you go, well, he's an immigrant and he's working and he goes to your church. Well, that's him. He's that he's not like the rest of them. And, you know, with yeah. the more the more we get integrated in society, I think the better it's going to be. Well, you know, Democrats could very easily decide they don't need to compromise their values that much to win power nationally as states like Georgia and Arizona change demographically, and the 20% or so of the country, I think that's roughly accurate, that's rural, will have to accept that they are the minorities in America now. Politically speaking, why shouldn't your party do the math that way and dig in on what they think is right, rather than even do the kind of outreach that you're doing with so many people out there, perhaps unreachable, and as you say, not even attached to the facts. Well, it, it, number one, I would encourage everyone, because I'm not going to go through all the facts here or all the numbers, everyone to go out on onecountryproject.com and look at our analysis on your idea that you can win without winning more rural votes. It's not going to happen. But more importantly for me is not winning elections, it's having a governable country that has a common identity and moving towards common purpose. And that's what we miss when we buy into these regional or racial divides. We've got to start identifying what, what we need to do for the entire country and taking down the temperature. And, and you know, you know as well as I do that uh, the party in power tra traditionally loses um, uh, seats. 
um, in in the midterm. We have a very narrow margin in the House and a narrower margin in the Senate. We need to be talking to everybody, and I think Joe Biden is exactly the guy for the time. And I think that's why I'm so excited about this president, because I think he gets it. He wants to be a president for everyone. A lot of people kind of maybe roll their eyes on that. I don't I know him. I know that he is that he feels that in his core, that in order for us to leave a better country for our kids, we need to unite this country and not divide it. And so to me, even if you believe that, even if you believe that you can win by playing the same you know, demographic game, that's not what we are as Americans. We've got to we've got to govern for everybody. Now, Leah in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. Hi, Leah. You're on America. Are we ready? Good evening. Thank you. Um, so I just want to just quickly say hello to Senator Heidkamp. Uh, I'm a uh, graduate of Grafton High School, uh, so I actually grew <laughs> up in North Dakota. I'm also, uh, I'm also uh, an immigrant and a woman of color um, who still lives mm-hmm. in a rural part of Minnesota now. And I'm also the uh, a, a, uh, an officer in the local Democratic Party unit. So this is very much uh, part of the conversations that we've been having locally about how do we connect with, uh, with, with rural voters and their values. And my theory is that uh, the challenge that Democrats face is in, our, is in how we frame our values and how we frame our messaging and that a lot of people in rural parts of this country don't see themselves centered, and therefore they don't feel seen when Democrats are talking about things, for example, like the Green New Deal. Uh, and so uh, we, we've got a situation here with a, a local township where there's some resistance um, on allowing farmers to, uh, to rent out land for solar farm development. And we got farmers who are very much on board with saying, hey, I want to let these guys <laughs> install some solar panels. Uh, so here's an example to me of how we can reach sort of cross that chasm, right, is we can talk about things like as, as progressives who support a Green New Deal and the green energy jobs that come with that, but frame it for some of these people who live out here where I do that this is about freedom and independence. We saw yeah. what happened in Texas. Imagine if you had solar panels and you didn't have to rely on an energy grid because you've got solar panels for backup energy. Um, we've got farmers who have said that, who, who have solar, uh, who have rented out land for solar farms, saying that the income that they got helped tide them over during, uh, yeah. during this trade war with China. So there's a way that we can talk about these issues, but frame it in the values that center what a lot of uh, of rural voters value, which is freedom and, uh, and, and independence. I think that's where we have to work uh, as a party. Senator, what, what one of yeah one of the interesting things when you're telling the story, we have the same kind of thing going on right now in North Dakota as it relates to wind energy. And of course, then these companies are looking rather than uh, leasing the land of the farmer in uh, uh, McLean County, they're going down to South Dakota and the farmer's losing out. The way I would frame that issue, actually, I would say, you know, you can't be the party of private property rights and then tell that farmer what he can put on his property. Um, And so there is a value right there. How do they explain that they're going to stop somebody from using their land that they own, which is their value, it's our value. 
Private property rights is the foundation of American, in my opinion, American democracy, but also American uh, entrepreneurship and American, um, uh, the free enterprise system. So why is it that you are going to use the government to impose a restriction on this farmer from making an income on his land that he owns? And so these are the kinds of things that we don't frame. We don't point out the hypocrisy of the Republican argument. You know, there's good regulation and there's bad regulation. That's bad regulation, and we should stand and talk about it from the standpoint of bad regulation, imposition, inappropriate imposition on private property rights. And, oh, by the way, about 65% of people in rural America think climate's a problem. They just want to see how the solution involves them. I'm involved with a project right now with the Bipartisan Policy Center to talk about what agriculture can do on climate. And it's going to be very exciting. I think we're going to see some real changes. Unfortunately, too often the local political figures are locked into a narrative that this is a hoax and we don't need to do anything. And they're missing opportunity, economic opportunity as a result. And we've got to point that out that this is this is bad economically for the future of rural America unless we get on board with, with these projects. Leah, can I ask you real quick, as the chair of your local yes. Democratic Party, how you think Biden is doing so far at connecting along the lines you and the senator have been trying to lay out with some of your Republican neighbors? Yeah, I think it's, it's still, uh, uh, frankly, an uphill climb for him. Um, just because I, I think we as a party, and this is a failing that I think Democrats need to own up to, uh, we as a party have done a very poor job in getting uh, folks to, to, to see beyond, quite frankly, what are a lot of culture issues. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think one of the uh, skills that I bring to the table here uh, is because I am a person of color, uh, but because I was raised by good Norwegian Lutherans, uh, <laughs> I speak rural, <laughs> rural Protestant American very well. Uh, yeah. And so when I'm given the opportunity to sort of talk about these issues and put people at ease that I really do understand yeah, you can where you come switch. from. I grew up on a fifth generation family farm. Uh, my family's still farming there. And we I, have to leave it there because the show's about to end. Senator, you want to take the last 20 seconds and tell people how they can uh, see your stuff? Yeah, um, go out on the website. Take a look, especially of the political analysis. So when the pr- progressive people, you know, urban people say, we don't need to worry about you. Yes, you do. You need to worry about us politically, but you also need to worry about uniting this country. And let's all pull together with this president. Let's make sure that we um, leave this country better and more united than what we found it. And we can do it. We can all do right. it. We can build back better. We can do everything that we need to do to bring the country together. Senator Heitkamp, thank you so very much. Connecting rural and urban voters, Democrats and rural voters, a work in progress, to be sure. And that's it for this week's edition of America are we ready? Callers, we thank you from everywhere. Listeners, we thank you. If you want to hear my other work, you can subscribe to my podcast, Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Or see you back here next Thursday night for America, Are We Ready? <laughs>